Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast where we talk about random things related to plants and plant molecular biology. I am Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram. And we're both in Berlin, Yay! which is really nice. Um, usually I'm in, in London for those of you playing at home. Um, I'm visiting quickly the city to see some friends, including Joram, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> and we get to record face-to-face -face for first yeah. time in a very long time, I guess. I wonder if uh, our listeners can actually tell the difference or not. I, I hope not. It would speak to my editing abilities. Um, ah, okay. but, but But let's see. But yeah, we can actually be in the same room i mean i'm um, told from the quality of the show because i just spent the last hour like staring into the eyes of a baby and making stupid faces instead of actually <laughs> doing my research so i think <laughs> it will it will be apparent in some ways at least yeah yeah um so how how have you been tegan you've you've spent a weekend in berlin did you do anything fun here i mean it's just meeting friends these days i'm not okay, sort of so nothing fun. it's i mean <laughs> mandatory friend meetings um yeah we had like picnics and stuff it's been also very springy here i yeah. think you guys are a few weeks behind us with spring as well so i yeah. got to have like the double spring and yeah, all of the flowers are in bloom. The, the trees uh, are releasing clouds of tiny petals into the into the wind. It's mm. it's very very pretty right now. Yeah, the city is also just a lot greener than London, so it's mm -hmm. it's really nice to be back. It smells different. It sounds different. There's all these tiny birds that are constantly cheeping, like making cheeping chirping. Maybe is the word. Um, yeah, I'm I'm losing my English again as I struggle to speak <laughs> German also very poorly. Um, it's all a bit. <laughs> A little bit chaotic, but it's lovely. It's lovely, lovely chaos. Yeah. Yeah, I also, like, I've just enjoyed the weather. Um, every year when the f sun finally comes out, I realize, like, how much my mood is driven by it, how much I can actually just be happier when i see get some sun rays on my skin i feel like we should have hacked that by now do you think i mean it's always these things where i think have we not hacked this and i think maybe rich people have hacked this maybe this is something where you know all the rich people just have a sun i mean i guess they just fly to a different country where yeah, there is I sun think this That's is the hack that you'd have simple to do hacking just go to greece for the summer um but maybe like they also have like a, a room in their house i did during my not my phd before that in my masters when i felt very stressed i used to just go and stand in the phytotrons like we had these big mm -hmm. walk-in controlled light controlled temperature and just surrounded by plants it was only rubidopsis plants and shelves and shelves of them but that was really soothing to me mm -hmm. um probably terrible because i was deregulating the temperature and the climate and the <laughs> co2 and i was probably just like ruining everybody's experiments but sometimes just like go for a minute and <laughs> People trying to identify the main influence on their data <laughs> during, the, during the whole analysis. And it's, oh, yeah, there's a weird component there. It's called Tegan. Yeah. What is that? TC1 is mostly <laughs> described by. Yeah. yeah but I also went, liked going into the greenhouses, into the Arabidopsis chambers in particular, because they had the nicest climate. I, I used to work mostly with tobacco and the tobacco chambers that were much Tropical. more humid yeah. and much hotter and therefore much less pleasant to be in. Mm. Uh, but the Arabidopsis, when I had to like bag the plants, it's it's something that takes a while, and just doing like a very repetitive movement, but it was re really calming and enjoyable. I like that. I, I miss that. Like sometimes miss the labs, but and I really sometimes miss the greenhouse days. Like there's mm. lots of things I don't miss, but these things sometimes I find very relaxing. Shall we talk about plants? Yeah. My 
favorite plant. So I'm the one who is talking about my favorite plant this week. But I actually just stole a favorite plant from Yoram because he's better at doing research than I am. I gave it away ah, willingly okay. and with joy. Yeah, and at a certain point of doing my very limited research based on his research, I realized that this might have been a little bit of a con because the plant he gave me as my favorite plant is also just a horrible plant. <laughs> so it's yeah, it made me think of you, Tegan. I saw this <laughs> this this horrible plant that's that's um, wreaking havoc on the fields of farmers across yeah. the world and it's like oh yeah this this sounds like tegan yeah also <laughs> the plant is called <laughs> weed i mean rich reed <laughs> so i'm just trying to make your editing life hard this is what happens we escalate um so it's striga hermonthica um so it's witch weed but witch weed is sort of the common name and it actually generally is applied to the striga genus so it's a variety of plants and yeah, I I am very hesitant to call it my favorite plant because it's it's truly truly awful. Um, some facts I found is that it's so it's a parasite. That's kind of the most important thing, and it's a parasite that really just seems to like a lot of different crops. Um, really gets into there, um, and I think a, a range of different things. I saw something about uh, sugar cane, but also maize, but also wheat. It's just yeah, I I think I read that it's it's very often also associated with sorghum. Mm-hmm. Um, where you, yeah, where it's also like a, a main pest in the in the field. Yeah, so maize, sorghum, and sugar canes are the the, the primary things, and there's some different numbers. Um, but I saw also that it can, you know, the the dollar numbers of how much damage it can can make, um, and also sort of it just so nine billion a year is the cost of this sort of striga damage to agriculture in Africa. Um, and then this is having not just a dollar cost, but obviously affecting the the crop production, therefore like the livelihood and also the access to to food for 100 million people across 25 different countries in the world. Some of the other things that make it horrible also are that it's capable of producing a ton of seeds. Mm -hmm. um, so I saw one thing that said 100,000 seeds coming out of it. Um, another, like on Wikipedia, it says between 90,000 and 500,000, so half a million seeds um, coming from each plant. And these seeds are really, really tiny. So they're basically dust. So you can't differentiate from the soil. There's no way you could like even sieve that out or, mm -hmm. or isolate them. I mean, not that you can really sieve agricultural soil, but, you know, hard to see everywhere. And then they can also remain viable in the soil for 10 years. So it's, you know, not like you get rid of it and then it's it's gone it's it's really yeah. you're going to be keeping on trying for years and it's, it's kind of you know those moths you get in your, the pantry yeah i read once that their eggs can remain viable for like 355 days it's like just shorter than a year so basically the last time you saw a moth you've got a year from that time you saw a moth until there's no moth and you will ne like once you have those pantry moths you will never yeah. not see a moth right there's always a moth somewhere that's yeah yeah, it's they're really hard to get rid of. So yeah, basically striga is the the moth of the plant world. Um, it's a parasite, just as a moth will parasite on your pasta stores. This will take over all of the crops, um, and yeah, really cause a lot of damage. So it's called not just witch weed, but also the violet vampire um, <laughs> in some countries, and it's because it also has these very brightly coloured flowers. Yeah, it, it's a really pretty flower. It has these like um, sort of three lobed petals going sort of on the downside it's like an asymmetrical um flower like on the on the horizontal axis asymmetrical um it's like bright pink and it, it, it looks really pretty mm. it's it's something where you could 
see it as an ornamental flower somewhere. Yeah, it's almost got the look of these kind of um, fancy dendrobian orchids. Like it's got this stalk with lots of mm-hmm. different flowers on it. And yeah, I mean, I would have it in my, my house, except that I would know that I would never ever get out of my house again. So <laughs> yeah. maybe not. And potentially destroy other people's plants around it as well. <laughs> Yeah, so as I said, the, the, the problem here is that it's a huge um, parasite. It's it's basically hooking onto the roots of the plants and then sucking out all of their their nutrients and their water, which is where the vampire reference also comes from. So it's really got a vampiric effect on all of these poor crop plants. So people want to study it. They basically want to study it to work out how they can kill it um, or at least you know limit its ability to infect crops. Um, and this is discussing some of the what has been done to try to study it. And the link is it's actually a bit of an older paper. So um, this is something that was published a couple of years ago. So we're talking about this because it's kind of interesting, but it is a bit of an, an older discovery. Maybe some of you have already heard about it. But one of the problems with studying parasites is it's always quite hard to set them up in the lab firstly because Mm -hmm. you need to not only be able to grow the host plant but also the parasite and then also them together and you also kind of want it to mimic like the field situation because otherwise you're what are you looking at um so there's all these kind of issues with setting up parasites and then knocking them down again i guess which is the ultimate aim of the research um and here one of the issues is that to the germination technique of the striga is a bit different from our main favorite lab rat plant, which is Arabidopsis. Uh, so you also have to sort of understand that there's some different processes involved. Um, and also if you want to use information from Arabidopsis, which is what we normally do, we normally sort of do shortcuts by using what we've already learned and applying that to our favorite or most hated species in this case. But you can't do that because as far as the germination goes, they have these different models of germination. And I actually, I don't think I knew this fact, or maybe I I heard it once and I learned it and then immediately forgot it. But there is a plant hormone called strigolactone. Like it's Mm -hmm. a a group of plant hormones that are called strigolactones. And that is from striga. Like this is... Yeah, I also just like made a connection right (laughs) now when I was... (laughs) Like I, I have an old article that I wrote um, a while ago open about about this plant for um, and we're linking that as well. And I just seeing the, the word written down is like, oh yeah, this this mole- group of molecules has the name from which weed. Um, uh, yeah, I also never made the connection before. Yeah, so they the first isolation of these hormones called strigolactones, which sort of you know are promoting growth or perhaps germination in this case, it was like back in the 60s, they found strigolactones in cotton plants, um, especially in the roots of the cotton plants. Um, And then sort of they noticed that certain parasites, and in this case, it's Striga lutea, which I think has now been renamed to Striga asiatica, but it's one of the species of witchweed, Asiatic witchweed or red, red witchweed. They showed that you basically needed to use this extracts of the root in order to stimulate the growth of the parasite which is like kind of clever and i use that a little bit like Mm -hmm. (laughs) personifying the plant but yeah so this plant is waiting until it gets the signal that its host is there and that's what is triggering the germination um and as it turns out it's the strigolactones that are then inducing the germination of striga species they they sense the other plant is there and that's what makes them pop out of nowhere so this is sort of one of the then pathways to maybe control striga plants. You can sort of perhaps put strigolactones on the field, 
and cause them to all germinate even when the host is not there. So sort of trick them into thinking the plant's there. They all grow up and then you can sort of go through and, and I don't know, herbicide them or just yeah, mow they, them down. They, they, they call it suicidal germination because without the host, um, when they germinate and there's no host, then they just oh, die. They just die anyway, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, one of the problems with that is it's, it's quite an expensive thing to do. So yeah. I mean, this is something that's it's more expensive to manufacture and just like applying that to whole crops. It's, it's not really accessible. Yeah, um, yeah. These strigolactones, they are not a cheap chemical to make. You can't just like, I don't know, like ant acid or like formic acid is a very cheap, simple molecule that you could easily spray, but not a strigolactone. So I guess um, this, this study that is linked here is them trying to work out more about this germination process and what's involved and sort of also be able to use all of the information we already have from our model Arabidopsis for Striga. But to do that, you have to override the fact that they have these different germinations. So the the Striga, it uses a strigolactone pathway, um, as we've just discussed. But in contrast, like Arabidopsis and like a lot of other non-parasitic plants, they use another hormone, which is called gibberellins or like gibberellic acids. And so you've got to sort of find a way to, if you want to use Arabidopsis as your model to see what might happen, mm-hmm. you've got to like first make Arabidopsis behave more like Struga. And this is what the the paper is here. So they were basically taking some receptors out of the, the genome of the parasitic plant and then putting them into Arabidopsis. And they could actually show that by doing that, they could make the Arabidopsis seedlings germinate and respond to strigolactones in the same way that the striga did. And then they could also then use those kind of modified Arabidopsis to find out more about this pathway and what happens in that pathway. So it's um, quite molecular level science, um, but it has this sort of ultimate aim that's linked to then hopefully being able to understand more about this awful witchweed, um, which is my favorite plant of the week. <laughs> um, and I love dearly. Um, no, it's horrible. Um, so finding more about it, which again, ultimately the idea is to control it and to prevent it from devastating agriculture, especially in Africa and, and food security. So yeah. yeah, quite a cool publication. And I mean, realistically kind of a cool plant, even though it is awful, like we can sort of respect it and also hate it, I think. Yeah, it's always the the fascination of the the like it's with like murder podcasts. You're like you're not condoning what's happening with the the people doing the crimes there, but it's sort of fascinating to learn more about the ways they do it. And for me it's the same with these plants. They you don't want them to do what they do, but yeah. it's sort of fascinating to understand how they like read the chemical signals from the host plant, how that triggers their own germination, how they then like grow as a parasite leach all of the nutrients out of there it's it's really fascinating stuff but then it's also thing that the aim is also pure then because you're you're fascinated and you want to learn more but in learning more you'll also like be able to overcome it you'll be able to have better weapons to to fight this so yeah yeah very cool diversity in the class science and this week uh, it's my turn um and i chose uh wanda savotska uh, who grew like who lived from um, 1900 to 1978? It's is that the way you say dates in English? I um, 1978 
Mm -hmm. um, and she's a, oh, she was a Polish plant researcher and mycologist. Um, she was actually grown in an Austro-Hungarian empire that still existed back then. Um, mm -hmm. But then she moved to Poland, to Krakow, and there she studied in the Faculty of Agriculture. And then at age 25, she was already awarded her doctorate five years earlier than her, her husband that she married in the same, uh, like in the same year, in 1925. Uh, and then she started conducting classes and become a senior um, assistant in the botany department uh, in the uh, Jagiellonian University Faculty of Agriculture. Um, that was then um, not uh, in Krakow anymore, but in Torun, which is another Polish city mm -hmm. where, where they moved then. And there she, she continued to work alongside her husband. Like her husband was in a different university, also a plant biologist. Um, she was establishing an entire department of horticultural botany there um, and also the uh, department of general botany and the Department of Microbiology. So she was really like doing lots of groundwork there. Um, and even before that, um, the, uh, she helped during the Second World War to secure lots and lots of the property and, and study materials of the university from the war and made sure that like like collections and specimen and so on um, survived the war uh, and apparently was, was quite successful at it. And then she became um, a professor in mycology in 1954, and that's what she then did for for the rest of her career. So she she really like climbed the the career ladder to to become a pro professor there. But she why I picked her and why she became important uh, is because she um, apart from it like scientific work, she was the first woman to or the the first ever person to publish a Polish guide to mycology and a popular book on parasitic fungi. So she was really in interested in mycorrhiza. She studied specifically like the re mycorrhizal relationship in viola in, in the plants and then mm -hmm. also um, popular popularized the study of mushrooms and mycology in Poland. Um, and with that, like contributed quite a lot to, to Polish education. And yeah, that's how, that's why I, I found it so so interesting that she, yeah, coming from this 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 plant plant perspective, but always looking at this interface to to fungi, something that we also talked about at length. Um, and uh, to, to me, like fungi are like I mean, we always discuss the like relationship between fungi and plants. But I'm I'm personally getting a little bit suspicious that maybe you have changed your love away from plants. You've sort of changed alliances <laughs> and your allegiances, and now you're. No. You're a fungi man at heart. No, no, it's not that bad. I still love plants very much. Um, but I really like the, the interplay. He said with little enthusiasm. I really like the interplay of, of fungi and plants. And Wanda Zabuska, um, Zabutska, I think, um, uh, studied that and uh, contributed a lot to it, uh, especially for the Polish science community and popular, uh, like general population. The the book is really cute looking as well, honestly. It's got like a little fly agaric mushroom yeah. on the the front and And I think it was used in teaching for quite a while. Um hmm. was like one important like Polish uh educational book. Nice. Yeah. Unfortunately I couldn't find um much more about her from like sources that I could read. Like I, I managed to translate some Polish articles, but um there is uh, not so much. I, I imagine that she did she, uh, did even more more cool stuff, but that's that's hidden behind the language barrier. <laughs> that's actually um, related to my bias, so maybe we can move on to that. Let's talk 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 about bias bias. 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 
Again, a little bit cheating on my homework this time. And I'm talking <laughs> about something that came out as a news feature actually in the Nature Journal uh, at the end of last month. And the feature is by Diana Kwan and it is The Rise of Citational Justice, How Scholars Are Making References Fairer. Mm-hmm. So this is a topic that we've talked a little bit about before, but from a slightly different direction. So this this paper is really focused a little bit around Christian A. Smith. Um, who has founded, she's a black feminist, anthropologist, social justice advocate, and she founded this movement, which is Cite Black Women, um, back in 2017, at the end of that year. It started with sort of just like T-shirts with just the word Cite Black Women. But as you can maybe guess from that, it's based on the fact that there is a lack of acknowledgement um, and like not just sort of, yeah, incitations, but also general acknowledgement. Um, that is different depending on what group of people are involved. So perhaps, as you might have guessed, you know, white men from certain parts speaking English get the the, the predominance of um, citations. And we'll come back to that a little bit um, in the end. But this article, it's really worth a read. It's a bit of a longer format article, but I think it's it's really nice. Um, it discusses about this from the site Black Women perspective, but goes into it a little bit more what the issues um, are that are there. And just as I mentioned, like citation, it's, it's, you know, when you write your articles, you're choosing which references to include. And we've discussed a little bit before that there is a citation um, biased. Um, we've, on the podcast, we've discussed the fact that there's this um, Matthew effect, which is the fact that scholars who are already successful tend to get more successful. The rich become richer or it's mm-hmm. snowballing. Um, and this is a fact that was already described in the 60s. So we know that, you know, somebody who's already highly cited is likely to become even more highly cited. Um, so that sort of was the first thing. And then from there, there was this description in the 90s of the Matilda effect, which was the idea that perhaps women were not being cited as much as men or like more broadly that their contributions were undervalued. So we've already sort of mentioned that on the podcast. Um, and this is looking at sort of in a broader way with a focus also on the racial disparity, which is a clear problem. And this is important not just because of acknowledgement. You know, if you're using somebody's work, you should acknowledge them. Um, and it's definitely not okay to just acknowledge based on where somebody's position of power might be relative to you. Yeah. I think that is a very human instinct to sort of like be a bit deferent to those above you. Um, but it does mean that people who are already lower, their work gets undervalued um or like considered lower i would say so you know people especially you see it with like junior and senior members of the lab if you get some some help from somebody who's more senior you definitely put them on the acknowledgements but you might be less likely to do it with the junior um and this happens across all sorts of um privilege uh yeah uh, cross sections as well so the first thing is just like it's basic decency and justice to acknowledge people's work. But, you know, this is also more than that. So citations for us, that's how, you know, we define how important, quote unquote, our work is. That comes up in grants, in hiring, in promotion. Um, And there's a quote from Cassidy Sugimoto in the article, which basically attributes citations as currency in the academic system. Yeah, that's what I want to say. It's like a currency that we exchange for grant money um, in the end. Like without citations, we can't, like get our research funded as easily. Yeah. Um, And there's been like over the past couple of decades or maybe like decade or so, there's been lots of these different sort of bibliometric things where you sort of do data crunching on 
how papers are made for, so for example, the citations. And it's shown that men are, as we mentioned, higher, more highly rated than, uh, more highly cited, sorry, than women. And this applies across quite a lot of fields. They list economics, astronomy, neuroscience, and physics. Um, and this is even when you do sort of these uh, controlling for other factors. So you make sure you've sort of normalized properly. So even when you say, okay, if we control for seniority of the author, or if we control for the year that it was published or the journal that we were published in, even then you sort of get this thing where there's a difference between men and women. Um, as an aside, men also cite their own work more than women do. <laughs> um, but this is not just a man-woman thing. It goes across multiple um, fields and sort of these multiple pr privilege um, disparities. Um, before I go to that, I want to say that it's this. there's evidence that this, the citation is not based on the quality of the work. So you might just say, hey, like this is just higher quality work that's getting um, cited more. Mm -hmm. We have some evidence. There's been some studies now that say that that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, and the other thing of concern is that we are increasing diversity in a lot of fields. Things have got better, but that doesn't seem to be making those citation gaps shrink. In fact, they're actually getting worse in some fields. Um, so even though the proportion of women on the papers is increasing, the gap is growing. And that's, that oh. is something that's a bit concerning. Um, yeah. That's something that needs to be looked into. Like sometimes it's, you know, you can look at the numbers, you're like, okay, we've, we've solved one problem. And then you've got to say, well, how come this is, the fact that this other thing is not improving is actually... yeah bit of yeah. concern as if and this is pure speculation but as if there's like an implicit counter movement and they're realizing oh now there's more female group leaders or whatever and then they're like oh let's like, it can be different reasons there's just a lag there's just that you know yeah. different things but i mean this is something that has to be made aware of that there can be then you know you have to sort of see the numbers and then you can deal with the problem like yeah. first acknowledge the problem then deal with it so as I mentioned, it's not just about male, female. There's also now some evidence. This is like a um, bio archive, so it's a preprint. Um, it means it hasn't been peer reviewed yet, but there's a paper that came out um, that looks at neuroscience and looks at sort of racial and ethnic imbalance in the citations there. So that's suggesting that white scholars are being cited at higher rates than people of color across a few disciplines, in fact. Some other biases there, language we've talked about before. So if you're, you know, using English, um, you've got an advantage. There seems to be undersiding of things that are not in English. Um, there's also, if there's an international collaboration involved, that seems to be more, more highly cited, which is sort of okay maybe, but also women are less likely to be like in leading positions in these big collaborations. So that could also be, mm -hmm. you know, a sort of an indirect thing that's linked there. Geography almost definitely plays a role. So we've talked about this global north, global south problem that we have. And then there's also things that probably or maybe do play a role, like gender minorities um, or disabilities, but we just don't even have data on them, which is, mm -hmm. again, you know, you've got to first get the data that then you can see what's happening. And, and that seems to be something that should probably be researched a little bit more. So we know that there are these discrepancies and we have some evidence that the discrepancies in citation are not related to the quality of the science. So something else is going on there. So it might just be, again, one of these biases that we have embedded in our system. And then the question is, how how do we go past this? And this is something that the article is also looking into. What are some potential things to make sure that citations, mm -hmm. we get over this? And I think like awareness is really the first thing, like to make people think about how they're citing, you need to have this. 
Um, and one of the things that sort of speaks to that is that uh, some authors, I think it's Danny Bassett and colleagues, they've been really promoting this idea of having a citation diversity statement, um, which is, I think is just, again, it's just to make people think about, um, yeah. have, you, have you sort of incorporated that? But they've also developed some tools that could help academics examine the representation in their papers um, to sort of run their citation through some code. And it's, you know, it's a bit automated, I think, um, because you can't really know people's identities just from the names. So yeah. it's, it's doing like some sort of probabilistic, which can, again, we, we know that can have prob some problems. Um, but it's sort of to look at the, the gender and the race of the authors in their yeah, I wonder if, like, from my from my own experience, the, how I chose which papers I cited, and I almost never looked at the author lists um, as my decision factor. Like, yeah. I looked at what's what's written in the paper, and does it help the thing that I'm writing? Is that like a support? Is that like a piece of evidence that I need in my writing? And like, I would like even if then I run a software and it tells me you're citing seventy percent men, and I'm like, what should I do about this? Mm -hmm. It's not that. So that's the thing. I don't think you're choosing the gender, but I think at some point the gender has can have been chosen. So, for example, yeah. like um, if you're citing, usually what when when you're citing, you're citing based on references you've found in another paper. Mm -hmm. So if that other paper has a bias in it, then that's a problem. And okay, this is kind of an argument that just goes back to the origins. But you know, if you go back and there's like a lot of men in a field, or if there's like you know men who know men, and you're more likely to cite paper of people you've interacted with at a conference or you've seen their work more visibly. Yeah. But if that system is already biased towards the dominance, then you kind of get again this kind of Matthew effect thing where you get it just reproduces and reproduces. And I think like, yeah, for me, I was thinking like, when did I look for site? I looked for citations. Yes, I did my own independent, like looking into Google Scholar and stuff, but often that comes out of like papers that are already published. Mm -hmm. And also like what was known in my group. So sort of this, this. Yeah, yeah. Somebody tells you like, ah, oh, have you checked like Smith et al uh, in nature last week? And yeah, then, and this then kind of like, connectivity thing. Um, yeah. And I, I did notice that, like, I, I could see sometimes when somebody from a different field came into the lab and they're like, oh, what about this other study? And in, like, some cases, it was just, you know, a different research organism. So I'm understanding how, let's say, chloroplasts work, which was my project. And I was always really focused on the model plant species that I use, which was tobacco. And a lot of that was because of familiarity in our environment. And then somebody would be like, well, you know, it's a bit different, but have you looked at how this works in algae? Mm -hmm. Because even though it's quite a way away, there is some overlap in the information there. And, you know, I had been very centered on what our lab group was centered on. But if I was working in a different lab group with like the algae as the focus, I would have definitely been more in that direction. And I think, okay, that can work with a topic, but I think that can also work with sort of these yeah. bubbles. Um, yeah. Yeah. I imagine that you need more like representation or change in representation in in sort of collections. And I'm, by collections, I mean things like journals, the stuff that they accept. Mm. Um, we know that sometimes there can be biases there as well, but also like conferences and meetings and so on um, that we really have to pay attention when we see like the, the famous picture walls of speakers of any conference mm. um, and you just do accounting of skin color and gender and you find like one group overrepresented. Um, these are the things I, I guess that have a bigger influence in changing uh, like stuff like the citation yeah. bias than like putting it on the individual researcher 
who tries to like write a paper or, uh, or so yeah as always there's systemic issues here I think there is like something about awareness and sort of you know you yeah. need that people are willing to acknowledge that this could you know people have to sort of acknowledge that there can be a bias which is always yeah. what we're discussing about in this is why we have this segment in our show right like scientists often have problems acknowledging that they have bias because they think that because they, they are scientists that makes them more objective but it's like no this you yeah. know bias yeah. is inherently what it is to be human basically um so that's kind of the thing acknowledging that there is bias there are also like some some problems here so you don't want the people are you know doing sort of putting names on a list just for the sake of having those names you know you Mm -hmm. should still be citing the most relevant science you shouldn't be just like oh you know i i've only got like four german men so let's have a woman's a reference to a woman's science and then we don't like we don't want this kind of performative I think that's that's one of always the arguments against, but yeah, there needs to be some correction, I guess, is mm-hmm. the thing. And yeah, I, always awareness is the first thing. Just to mention, this isn't just about citations. It's not only citations. So again, Kristen Smith from Cite Black Women says it's not just about bibliography. It's really about overall acknowledgement. And this is sort of something that, again, relates to the fact that not everything can be communicated in, in the same ways and sort of there's sort of some alternative looks at how to acknowledge people who for example um have more verbal passing down of knowledge this is, um, often especially applies to indigenous uh, peoples and then how to incorporate those kind of acknowledgements which are not the traditional scientific way mm-hmm. um into things as well so like a broader engagement recognition you know, fixing the system, which is obviously yeah. quite a big undertaking. Yeah, yeah just, it's easy. Just fix it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I it, re- it reminded me of, and I, I tried to find it on the side here, There's a, I, I, there was a tool that I once used where you can analyze um, also on like very simple um, uh, assumptions. Who are you following on social media, particularly on Twitter? And do you have like some overrepresentation in your bubble of people that you're following on Twitter? And is that something just just to increase the awareness that maybe like the world view that you like catered for yourself there has a bias in some direction? And um, that was really interesting for me to see. I mean, of course, I played with some friends. Then um, who's the wokest with the most diverse <laughs> bubble? Um, but it it really yeah it really helped to put into perspective that maybe the stuff that you're constantly looking at that you perceive as the outside world is shaped in a certain direction and then you can like reflect on it and decide whether you want to change that or not or like whether it needs change or not and i think these these studies or these tools they're very important to to allow that because otherwise it's just really hard then you only have your gut feeling to like follow and think oh is this actually overrepresented or not And the first thing I brought is on um, on the surface, only tangentially related to plants, but there is some plant science in there. But I, I just found it so cool. I found it yesterday on Twitter, and it really made my night. I have a, two, two things for you, and you can maybe describe them. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's sheets of paper with stuff on it. Maybe just start with one. Okay, yeah, that was very confusing. Um, okay, so I have a sheet of paper. It's got sort of some words, seeing the light, lessons from and about plants. Oh, it's by Dr. Baron de Montgomery, who we've talked about before. Um, she's featured in our podcast previously. Um, and she wrote a book called Lessons from Plants, mm-hmm. which we also read as part of our other podcast. 
And then it has a cactus wearing sunglasses um, with a chalkboard. And he seems to be teaching something about the birds and the bees, maybe. There's a picture of a flower <laughs> and a bee coming. Um, and then there's a variety of, I want to say a kohlrabi, a thistle, a wheat, some dude with a hat and a sunflower, all learning in horror the things that he's, <laughs> yeah. I guess they're concerned about the sexy lessons. Yeah, it's maybe like when you do sex ed with kids and they're at first disgusted at the human body. I think it's that spirit. But yeah, One of them looks like very quietly into it. He's like, mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing what I like. Yeah, and what that is, this uh, this is a poster for um, a biology seminar that Dr. Andrew, uh, Andrew Trent drew. Um, and he drew like, I think, 120 of these posters for different biology seminars and... Um, like use them to advertise these seminars and they are really really cool it's all kinds of different biological topics very different styles in the posters very mm. very creative and they uh, released it now as a coloring book this oh. is yeah, the other that i gave you this is inspired by richard scary i was like i recognize this style of drawing from a children's book when i was a child yeah. and i cannot remember his name yeah it really looks like richard scary and style. that's why i printed it out because i'm constantly reading this to my kid um he really likes these books because he's into cars and richard scary has like all of these wonderful vehicles and mm. things that he draws um and yeah so i definitely that's why i printed them out i will like color them in with my <laughs> my kids definitely and just looking at all of these i found it so inspiring you can download them um we're linking to an article where you then find also the information where you find it on the university website and i just found this is like a very cool way of um, not only using, I mean, on the on the surface, it's just advertising for an advertisement for an event, but also mm. all of the drawings they they tell a story. Sometimes it's just a pun, but sometimes it's something like mechanistically or talking about an idea and making people interested in this. And I really really like that um, that combination right. of, um, yeah, uh, making a biology seminar more well known uh, and combining that with art. And then now like being able to color that in is even like an added bonus to it. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And and there's more like I <laughs> I encourage everyone to just like look up the PDF and, and browse through it. There's like some others that are inspired by um like Japanese art, like the famous wave thing. Um Oh yeah, there's a Mucha one as well. The first one on the website is this mm -hmm. kind of um art nouveau style with the circles. Oh wow, really Yeah. Really beautiful. Yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed going through them yesterday night and um, looking at them, and it's it's really pretty stuff. So one of the things I found it's from Science Daily, um, but it's linking to a recent article that came out in the journal Agriculture, um, and it's novel three D spaced textiles to reflect crops and insect invitations. <laughs> Can you say that a little bit faster, no, please? No, I wanted you to understand what it is from that. No, okay, I'll do it. Sorry. It's a novel 3D spacer textiles to protect crops from insect infestation and that enhance plant growth. Mm -hmm. um, so jumpers for, for plants. Yeah, almost exactly that, actually. Um, it's I mean, it's a bit more of a covering, so it's more of a kind of... No, I imagine knitted jumpers individually for... 
it's really hard because I not only have two arms, I have lots and lots of branches, so you have to make lots and lots of... Yeah, putting it on and off as they grow. <laughs> I mean, what's really nice is this is the name that they've given to these pesticide-free 3D spacer fabrics is in fact Plant Armor Generation 1 and 2. So, PHN1. Um, so, the plant armor is basically, I mean, it's it's kind of cloths over a greenhouse. So, imagine, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's basically a giant mosquito net for plants. Um and this is something that's sort of been around for a long time. You want to separate your plants from insects, and one easy way to do it is kind of put a cloth barrier. Um, but the problem here is that some insects are really, really tiny, um, and one of them is the tobacco thrips. And I actually know about tobacco thrips because one of my friends was working with sterile culture, and she had like little magenta boxes, so sort of small boxes that have a like a Tupperware container the mm-hmm. lid closes um it's not quite hermetically sealed but you you close the lid there's a little bit of airflow you need some air to go in and out so the plant can live but then you even put like a sort of um tape like a, a um bandage gauze tape that is effectively allowing a little bit of air to flow but basically nothing else mm-hmm. and even with that these damn thrips can get in <laughs> And I think these thrips, I mean, technically, I think they infest the plants, but realistically, in sterile culture, what they do is they just, like, come into your boxes and walk across the sterile culture with their dirty feet and just, like, cause fungal blooms. And mm-hmm. they really destroy everything. Um, and part of that is from them eating, but it's it's partially just from, like, not cleaning their feet before they enter the box. And really, that's the problem. They're so small. Um, the article says, like, the size of a pencil point. So really, like, a little – that it's it's hard to make a physical barrier against them. And so with these cloths, if you want to make it small enough to prevent thrips from getting in, you're also going to prevent the exchange of water and air and, you know, mm-hmm. things that the plant actually needs to survive. So what the researchers did here is they made their plant armor um, and it's three layers. It's sort of knitted using a yarn. So imagine somebody knitting some plant. I said a knitted plant. Knitted, uh, yeah, it's very jump- like you jumpers. Got, the jumper analogy was, was great. Um, <laughs> and the, the yarn itself is also made from recycled plastic, which is quite nice. Um, we've got a lot of plastic in the world. As it turns out, recycling is maybe a nice thing. But this still lets um, sunlight through, so it's sort of um, not too opaque. It's mm-hmm. The sun can come through but it's preventing the insects from getting through. And basically the way it does this is that it makes a maze inside. So it has these like three layers, but the the sort of two layers parallel and then the inside layer is perpendicular. So the the plants, like the air can still diffuse, but like the, the thrips would have to like go through this maze mm. in order to find their way through um, the fabric. Um, so... They developed this, um, they tried it, I think they also tried it in the field for a couple of months and it works pretty well. Um, and they also even said that, yeah, they did a three-month outdoor field trial, which is, it's always nice when somebody develops something in the lab and then also like mm-hmm. puts out in the field. And they said that, you know, it worked really nicely. Um, they got like larger growth. They they had cabbages they were growing and the cabbages were almost three times larger than the control so they're just like not having to use all their resources protecting themselves and they can grow a lot more um they need to sort of look a little bit more into 
how this is working. It seems to work, but they're not super sore about what's, what's... Yeah, I just imagine all of the thrips getting stuck in the maze. And in the end, after a growth season, you have just all of them stuck in, in the maze as if they is the lots of minotaurs. <laughs> like, yeah, then it just gets really, really heavy and, and weighed down <laughs> with the body of dead thrips. Um, <laughs> they just keep clouding on there, like piling on there, <laughs> filling up the entire void in there. Anyway, it seems positive so far. And they also mentioned that, you know, in the experiments they were doing, especially the ones in the lab, you sort of release the bugs on the plant or like, you know, on the plant covered in its plant jumper slash armor. Um, and at that point, the, those bugs only have that plant. So if they don't make it to the plant, they will die. But in reality, with crops and in the wild, you've often got other plants around. So then mm -hmm. hopefully they would sort of give up and go back and like, not yeah. go through the maze maybe let's just like make a behavioral choice to go and infest something else so it could be even um more useful in the real world with yeah. their their suggestion but yeah kind of a nice idea huh yeah uh i have something you you had like a funny name for that and I, i have two other things that stood out to me because of their name the first one um and unfortunately this one is behind the paywall so don't ask me too much about it um oh no i think it was just accepted and not yet like Like it's in the process of being published. So I only could look at the abstract. Um, but the abstract had um, a model in there, a training model that's called YOLO version 4. Um, and they adapted it to be the YOLO PEFL model. And I just yeah. like, okay, YOLO. Um, it's a, a, a pair flower detection um, tool. It's, it's in, the, in the end, it's a machine learning tool that you can go with a robot through um, a pear orchid and then count all of the pear flowers and then estimate from that how much yield you will have um, how, because there's a relationship between how many flowers you have and how much fruit you have and this is important for farming What, what's the yolo stand for though I, i could not find this figure this out because the, the paper wasn't there so i i can only tell you that there's like you only live once version four for pear modeling um and this is only like a small side thing but i found another one that uh, stood out to me um it's the uh, the article that i read was called surface science supports seawater study You can maybe see why I picked that one. And it's actually a quite interesting study that the surface science there did to support a seawater study. Um, so there's a surface scientist called Bob Bruin who likes to surf. And um, what they did is that they went out in, in the water while surfing and collected seawater samples. And then they would analyze the chlorophyll content of the seawater samples as a proxy for algal, uh, for mm -hmm. like phytoplankton in there. Um, and then they would compare that to other like collection points because very often you have the problem when you set up an automated collection platform that measures these things. You can't do this um, very close to the shore where you have lots of waves. Mm -hmm. um, so you often do it a little bit more offshore. But the area, um, like the nearshore area, is actually quite different from the offshore area in terms of nutrients, of like runoff from, from rivers, um, from the general growth behavior because of the breaking waves there. But surfers like to be there. And so um, Bob Bruin thought, why not, like, when I'm already in there, in this area that I can't easily sample in an automated way, why don't I sample it? And so they collected, over the course of a year, different samples and compared them between, like, nearshore surfer collected sample and offshore automated sampling okay. and found that there is some overlap there. Like, sometimes the two, number, two numbers correlate very well. 
But there are certain times during the year when the nearshore data is very different from the offshore data, which tells that there's like different stuff happening in the ecosystems where the offshore um, is much more depleted of phytoplankton, where in the nearshore you still have quite a lot of phytoplankton, probably fed from like runoff from the coastline. And with this, this was sort of a pilot study to figure out if this is possible. Now they're looking into how to make this into like a bigger citizen science project where then not only mm -hmm. one surfer scientist, but lots of surfer scientists go out there to support seawater studies. Um, and I, I just think it's really cool that you have like surfer dudes that are doing science now. Yeah. I looked up what YOLO was, by the way, and it's actually you only look once when it refers to. Uh -huh. so this is like specifically used for visual detection. Um <laughs> the original version was uh, written by Joseph Redman. Mm, okay. Thank you for doing my homework on this one. <laughs> um, so I am reporting on something which came out in Science. Uh, Yoram, do you know what a keystone species is? I know what a keystone is. This is the okay. thing when you have an arch and mm -hmm. the central piece that you put in there that holds it all together. Like you, like the old Roman arches, they're sort of not stable on their own and until you put the keystone in. And then the whole thing sort of whatever the forces distribute okay, that the so whole thing stands up. So I imagine extrapolating on that to an ecosystem, what's a keystone species? I would imagine that's then like a species that's vital for the for the stability of the entire system. That like mm -hmm. when you take that one away, everything else crumbles as well. So this is this is basically exactly it. Um there was a ecologist, um, Robert Payne, who found that if you take starfish um out of sort of a rocky intertidal zone ecosystem you end up with kind of a collapse of the whole ecosystem so that that's like this this one species is sort of keeping everything in in check and balance and removing that can really cause quite a rapid um collapse and this is something obviously people are now um interested in from the point of view of conservation like some species might have more importance if they mm -hmm. their numbers go down than others potentially um, the new thing in science is, in fact, not about keystone species, but it is showing that a keystone gene underlies the persistence of an experimental food web. Mm -hmm. So um, here the scientists used um, a very sort of simplified ecosystem, which had uh, Arabidopsis saliana, so our favorite model plant. It then had two different types of aphids. So they are the herbivores that are eating the plants. And then it had a parasitic wasp, which is the predator, which then can eat the herbivores. Um, and basically, they looked at how changes in plant genes could have a larger effect on the ecosystem. So if the plant had a mutation in a single gene, which the gene is called AOP, um, and this mutation sort of occurs naturally as well, this mutation then affects the chemistry of the plants. So it changes, you know, I guess even how they taste as well, um, but it also impacts how fast they grow, they grow, which in turn defines a little bit how the herbivores um, can grow, which also like fixes the balance between herbivores and predators, which in turn is keeping the the system from collapsing. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's a little bit kind of to me, it's almost terrifying to sort yeah. of go into this um, scale. Yeah. But I really, I really like this um, fact that there is more movement in sort of ecology to look at the, the role of different genes, especially when it comes to adaptation for the future. Um, and this is here like, yeah, this bridge between biological scales. So you're showing that like one gene and sort of, you know, a small mutation even in a gene. I'm not actually sure what it was at the molecular level. I can look into that. But um, 
yeah, just, you know, a slightly different version of a gene makes enough difference to to have this ecosystem collapse. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, this is very simplified. So, you know, that's in, in an ecosystem that's natural, you would have diversity of different alleles, but it's yeah it's quite interesting huh yeah ecosystem collapse always sounds so terrifying and i mean it it is terrifying but in most cases um, i think we're a little bit too obsessed with this concept of like tipping points and oh my goodness now everything's gone i think we're a little bit yeah because we always have to remember that um these small changes are what drives evolution and how we get to all of the diversity is because there has been some sort of like ecosystems that not necessarily collapse but drastically change because of like some small part of it changed significantly and then you get a new population there you get some changes there you get maybe some populations that die out and some others that come can come in i I guess so like but i think in the the context of like things like rapid environmental change like climate change but also you know um humans changing environments then you do get this concern but yeah we we still do have like to have this kind of idea of like all or nothing and like suddenly we go from yeah but i mean often like the scarier thing is the underlying trickle and loss of yeah yeah maybe the scary thing i'm not sure but (laughs) but when it comes to like a single gene mutation i imagine that this is not a man-made quick and drastic change in most cases but this is just part of evolution but it's interesting to see that uh it goes way beyond the individual when you have small genetic mm. changes. I mean, that's what we often think about it. Oh, yeah, you have like this one little individual creature and this is now 5% better at taking up nutrients and this gives a fitness advantage and like, its next generation is better. And then you have you always look at the individual. But yeah, as studies like this show, this then quickly I mean, yeah. snowballs into then not only the one creature doing different but the entire world around it changing as well i guess i think like this is this has been a bit sexified right so i think like it's not it's quite logical that if you alter how fast the plant grows you would change you mm-hmm. know how the herbivores survive and that would change the predator and then i think like depending on the conditions you could get to the point where the predators either it, it goes better or worse like, i mean it's it's very small scale and it's also like in that setup under those conditions you know if the light yeah. conditions were different also then the plant would grow at a different rate and that might throw the balance out again so yeah. i think there is a little bit of like sexification of this um so like I, I do think it's cool but i think that's kind of logical um and again it's very simplified and like complexity also can give resilience and it does like this mm-hmm. is people know that you know the more complexity you have you it's often linked to resilience of ecosystems um, so on one hand, that that's not so unexpected. I really like the side where it's like looking across biological scales. I think that's really sexy science, and it's really, it's really interesting to, yeah. What what I mean that's because of our bias of, of molecular biology training. But like, what are the genes that? Yeah, okay, sure, this thing acts in this way or does this thing, but like, yeah. why? Like, what's what's the genetic? Yeah. Explanation for this. Yeah, exactly. I have. Do you have something more like plant related coming up? No um okay then i have one just like short thing i found funny when i when i read it it's also science related but not plant science but human science um there has been a study research has finally answered a question that everybody has it's like who is the most boring person in the world Mm. and um, based on surveys where they ask people to to um mark triggers for a boring person like professions and hobbies and and stuff they created the profile of the most boring person in the world and the um, the winner is the most boring person in the world works in data analytics which okay. to me sounds like like science mm-hmm. <laughs> like big data uh, has a hobby of watching tv and lives in a small town um 
Okay. And this is the the person that people are like least interested in. And on one hand, it's, it's sort of funny um, to just to to find such an answer, um, but it has some some implications because. Uh, this can have negative effects on the person that are perceived as boring. I mean, this is just what sort of the outside world thinks of a person that's boring, but it doesn't mean that you're a boring person just because you work in data analytics. Um, and It doesn't mean you should maybe develop other hobbies, though, or like, <laughs> not, like don't lead with that on your dating profile, maybe. Like. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But yeah, people trend, uh, would actively avoid these people, and they were even asked in the survey... Um, if they were asked to spend time with a boring person, how much money would they want in compensation oh my for gosh. it? And it comes down to that they want, on average, $35 a day just to spend time That's with a boring... That's not that much money, though. Yeah, but still, if you imagine, like, look, can you hang out with my friend Steve, the data analyst who likes watching TV? I give you 35 bucks for every day. <laughs> it's sort of... it's It makes it even sadder to, that people want money but they want only like a small amount of money that it adds insult to injury to me. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's also the thing of like, I mean, I have a lot of really boring interests, for example, I mean, I thought this is going to, this is now going into a bad, but I was going to say, I have a lot of boring interests like plant science, but I don't talk about them. But I mean, obviously I do. This is not the right time to make that claim. Um, but you know, maybe I choose the people I talk into the void the podcast void, as opposed to boring all of my friends. I do successfully have friends. And with many of those friends, I don't tell them about the, I don't know, ultra, structure of the the fern gametes because i know that they don't give a f <laughs> like, and that's i think that's what it is it's a bit about balancing yeah who you, i think like I, I find this i think most people can be interesting they've got some ways they can be interesting and like if you're finding everybody boring maybe part of that is that you're also not like trying to find what is interesting about yeah. that person maybe you're not asking enough questions and maybe you're making these assumptions where you're like oh data analysis is boring but like maybe they're doing the data analysis for like how likely it is that the next zombie apocalypse will happen and <laughs> then it's like okay this is really cool and it's on me that i didn't ask the questions or find out yeah. like and this is kind of also d doing these kind of podcasts i almost every topic the more you go into it there's something interesting there um for lots of different people and so maybe yeah. just like probe 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 ask the questions um yeah i think it also tells more about about general perception of things rather mm. than about the individuals who are considered boring and you notice that they didn't say that people who ask a lot of questions are boring i mean they might be <laughs> annoying but they didn't say boring so you can just That's go and like ask some questions ask some questions like what about your mother what's where's she from like what did she like that's a follow-up study. It's like, who is the most annoying person in the it's world? It's definitely the question askers. <laughs> Let's just hope none of our two names come up there. I think that's all of the fun facts I have for today. Yoram, do you have anything perhaps about cats? Yeah, I have something about cats. Cat fact. And by cats, obviously, I mean dogs. Um... These, <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was a study um, that just came out uh, in science where they uh, looked at the relationship or whether you can predict a dog's behavior based on their breed. So you take any individual dog and you say, this is a golden retriever. Mm -hmm. um, can you predict something about their behavior? Do they retrieve a lot? Are they very sociable or not? Apparently, like, retrieving is an important trait. About the articles I read about this, is always like, yeah, there are some retrievers who don't retrieve. I'm like, what are they retrieving? Yeah, a stick. I mean, that's this is what people always complain about cats. They're like, oh, with a cat, you throw something, it doesn't bring it back. And it's like, yeah, because the cat has other <laughs> to do with its life. Yeah. But people, people 
who want dogs, I think that that's one of the things they want is that the dog brings them a stick or something. <laughs> yeah. that, they, that they can immediately throw away again and then yeah. get it back. It's it's very pointless. <laughs> I don't get it. But apparently, yeah, this this is something that you, even if the breed is called a retriever, um, it they might, might not, not retrieve. It might not retrieve, yeah. And to but do you that, can send it back then, right? Like if I bought one of these and it's, <laughs> like if, it, if it was a golden retriever and it was A, not gold, or B, didn't retrieve stuff, I could be like, this is a defective dog I want to refund. It's called a golden retriever, but it's not made of solid gold. I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what they did is they asked dog owners um, of, I think, over 10,000 dog owners filled out surveys about the, the personality of their dogs and the breeds that they had. And they, they looked both at pure breeds and mutts. So mutt is a, I also mixed learned that, dog, yeah. yeah, a mixed dog. And then they did also over 2,000 samples of DNA sequencing of, the, of the dogs. Of, and also, again, about half purebred, about half mutts to really not only have the breed as an outside description, but also as a genetic description of it. And also then with the mutts, you can really um, pinpoint then if you find any gene that's interesting um, also uh, across like not only in the in the breed but also like in the mixes of breeds mm -hmm. so then if you find the gene in the mutt and in the breed and you see behavior linked to it it's more easy to do the or like more solid um, evidence You're for basically doing GWAS with dogs yeah mm. and what they found is that dog breed is not a very good predictor of dog behavior because while on on average in larger populations you have certain traits that you can um, link to breeds like border collies can in general be trained very more, well more collie what does that even yeah okay i don't know uh, oh they guard the borders like in australia we don't let fruits come into our country so like if you have border maybe they're, collies. they're really good at like finding people who have cauliflower and or other fruits and vegetables as they come across the border yeah Maybe that's what good. border collies do. And in general, they're very good border agents. Um, but on, if, if you look on any individual dog, there's um, a huge variance in their, in their qualities there. So you can have very likely have a, a border collie who is terrible at protecting the borders from mm -hmm. cauliflowers. And uh, that, yeah, this is the, the surprising outcome. Well, like some, some dog breeders are, are surprised by this. Some dog trainers, for example, are not so surprised by this. I found some quotes where they said like, yeah, this is what we see in our daily life. Like you, people come with a breed of dog and it's like, this should be a very clever yeah. dog. And then the dog is just <laughs> not very clever. Um so, but now we have scientific evidence to that, and they could even find some some links, some some genes that are linked to certain behavior traits, um, which but were quite interesting. So then also they're using here the information that the owners give based on like, is your dog playful? Is your dog mm -hmm. X Y Z? Um, did they find disparity between the purebred and the mutt? As far as like, I can imagine, that would also be a sort of a bias thing here, where if I bought a golden collie golden retriever because i thought it was golden retrievy then i would sort of if somebody said oh what's the characteristic of your golden retriever i'd say oh yeah he's really retrievy and really goldy like that's what he does um so there'd be some sort of like selection like some some bias where we put our expectations onto the dog and then maybe also raise them differently so like maybe because you expect him re to retrieve you play a lot of stick games with him as a child yeah. whereas somebody who's got the border collie is like putting cauliflower out for the dog like, <laughs> so maybe there's like that so did they find that that there was people who had the dog expected the dog to behave in that way I, I, I imagine that they've controlled for this in the statistic analysis of these surveys I imagine this is a problem that you commonly have with yeah. surveys that ask behavioral questions so I don't know 
Um, I, I didn't find anything written about this um, this specific finding, but I would imagine this is a common problem whenever you do I mean, ser- these we, sort of soft surveys where... Yeah, we know these biases like exist for babies, so I yeah. guess they also exist for... <laughs> Fur babies. Yeah. Oh dear. Um, but the, the the scientific reason for this um, effect I find quite interesting is because most dog breeds are very recent. Like most dog breeds breeds actually emerge in the Victorian times. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just too short a time to really um, like develop like go beyond uh, the aesthetics of the dog breeds Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then have like most of the behavioral genetic makeup is made up before they started breeding dogs into certain categories. Okay. So these things are sort of older traits Uh um, and are more linked to the common ancestor that all of the different dog breeds have than what they saw in variation after people started breeding dogs in all of these very weird shapes and sizes. Um, And for owners... Uh, just to, to end this, um, um, for them, it's important to not listen to the stories about the dog's breed when they're picking up a dog, but rather look at the individual dog and mm-hmm. see like if there's certain things they can already spot when it's a small dog that like that they like or that they don't like, instead of listening to whatever the salesperson tells them. Oh yeah, this will this thing will retrieve you a lot of gold, um, so you better pick this golden retriever. Uh, so yeah, dog breeds like descriptions of dog breeds are to be taken very carefully. So if somebody's like, "Oh my cat, my dog's a golden retriever," so it's very good at fetching. I can be like, "Sure, my cat's a Scorpio." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> means it holds a grudge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I think dog dog breeds are <laughs> not exactly like star signs for dogs. <laughs> But Slightly there is some element accurate. of it definitely there. Like there's like <laughs> some assumptions you can make from the breed, but but you can't really define like define your entire dog based on its breed. I think that might be the end of our show for today. If you want to read more about the stuff that we've written in the past, you can go to our website. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com. We have like various blog posts as well as like the links in the show notes in case you somehow haven't worked out how to get them on your phone app, which. You might be like me. Um, <laughs> you can also find us on the social medias. So Yoram. Uh, you can talk to me on Twitter. That's at Plants Pipettes. Uh, if you want to talk to me, I'm usually on Instagram. Sometimes I hang around Facebook. It's at Plants and Pipettes. Um, and our opening and closing music is Caravana by Pond of Grass. Yes. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.